Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcasts and give us any constructive feedback. The Herald, Wednesday the 3rd of August 2022. News. Concern for vulnerable as Assist Home Care Scotland Limited goes into liquidation. This article is by Martin Williams. A Scots Care at Home firm has been placed into liquidation with debts of over £500,000, raising concerns for the vulnerable in their care. Around 43 Assist Home Care Scotland Limited Service users were told caregiving had ended on Friday and nearly 50 staff were handed the news that their contracts had been terminated. The Ayrshire Company, based at the Stevenston Industrial Estate and provides support services to vulnerable adults throughout North Ayrshire, was co-founded in 2011. Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs issued a liquidation notice to the company as a result of unpaid tax over the past three years and is believed to have accumulated over £500,000 in debt. The staff provide packages of support hours which varies from a few hours per week to 24 hours per day to enable people to live independently in their own homes. Ken Patullo and Kenny Craig of Begbie's Trainer were appointed as joint liquidators. Thomas Mackay, a partner at Begbie's Trainer in Scotland, said, We are currently working with the key stakeholders, including HMRC, North Ayrshire Council, the Care Inspectorate and the company staff to ensure continued delivery of care to patients. We are seeking to ensure continuity of care for vulnerable clients who rely on support and this is our priority in these difficult circumstances. A petition for a winding up order was first presented to Kilmarnock Sheriff Court on behalf of HMRC on June 30th. Assist Home Care provides people with learning and physical disabilities and a small number of older people with approximately 1,060 hours of care per week. A document circulated to officials says North Ayrshire Health and Social Care Partnership, NAHSCP, have been trying to rescue the jobs of assist home care workers as the HSCP is not currently in a position to cover the level of care required for the individuals at such short notice. A report from Caroline Cameron, the Director of North Ayrshire Health and Social Care Partnership, said the only viable option is for the HSCP to attempt to retain the staff group to ensure service delivery can continue 
to our vulnerable service users over the weekend and in the immediate future. This will also allow us to support the assist staff who are at risk of losing employment. It goes on, this situation will be very distressing for staff and service users. Earlier engagement with the HSCP in relation to the financial position and court action could have allowed for a planned period of transition. While still disruptive, would have been far better for staff and service users. The late notification and non-payment of wages by the provider has led to this necessary urgent response. The latest financial analysis of the company shows that it owed £331,327 to creditors in the year up to March 31st, 2020. A further £184,194 was outstanding from the previous 12 months, adding up to a total debt of more than £515,000. Its last care inspectorate inspection report from 2019 said that the quality of care and support and staffing was classed as very good. The level of management and leadership was not assessed. The inspector said, Assist Home Care Limited continues to deliver a very good standard of care and support that meets people's needs enabling them to live in their own homes. People can expect to receive high quality care and support that is right for them and to experience compassion, dignity and respect. We observed competent, caring and compassionate support being delivered. We could see that carers knew people well. They knew how to deliver essential care in a way that was right for the person and in a way they were comfortable with. People we observed appeared very relaxed and familiar with staff, and people we spoke to told us they were very happy with the service. We could see that people trusted and relied on the service, and it was evident that support had a positive impact on people's daily lives. This article is by Martin Williams. The Herald, Tuesday the 2nd of August 2022. News. Energy company pushes ahead with one of the North Sea's largest undeveloped oil projects. This article is by Scott Wright. Park Mead Group, the energy company headed by former Dana Petroleum chief Tom Cross, is looking for commercial partners to invest in what is billed as one of the North Sea's largest undeveloped oil projects, writes Scott Wright. The company has launched the farm-out process for the Greater Perth area in the Moray Firth, which holds approximately 55 million barrels of recoverable oil equivalent, MMBO, in the core Perth field. The wider GPA project has the potential to deliver between 75 and 130 mm bow. Park Mead holds a 100% interest in the field, which is fully appraised. The company said significant global challenges have made it more attractive to invest in projects such as GPA. 
Russia's assault on Ukraine has increased the UK government's focus on energy security and underlined the importance of having robust domestic production, it added. Mr Cross said, We have secured 100% of the GPA project and delivered a commercial export solution. So now is the right time to drive the project forward with a complementary industry partner. GPA is one of the North Sea's largest undeveloped oil projects and its development would serve to increase the UK's energy security once on stream. Shares closed up 4.6% at 68 pence. This article is by Scott Wright. The Herald, Tuesday the 2nd of August 2022. News. Glen Lyon Roaster starts sailboat coffee shipping. This is by Brian Donnelly. It took three months, but the precious cargo's arrival has marked a milestone for one sustainable coffee company after it started shipping beans to Scotland from Colombia by sailboat. Glen Lyon Coffee Roasters, collaborating with New Dawn Traders for its new Colombia Las Brisas, crossing the Atlantic carried only by wind power aboard the schooner De Gallant and arriving at the firm's Aberfeldy Roastery, offering a taste of a possible future less reliant on carbon-intensive cargo shipping. New Dawn Traders, a broker and importer based in Falmouth and Cornwall, partners with various vessels to ship olive oil, wine, honey and coffee around the world. Las Brisas comes from the department of Tolima, high in the Andes, the third largest coffee-producing region in Colombia. Glen Lyon Coffee Roasters said, The coffee set sail from Colombia in early February, traversing the Caribbean and Atlantic before arriving into Penzance Harbour at the end of April. It was transported aboard De Gallant, a characterful schooner built in the Netherlands and first launched in 1916. It continued, De Gallant has lived many lives over the past century, working originally as a herring lugger before becoming a cargo ship and then being completely restored and transformed into its current form in the late 80s. Today it transports cargo across the Atlantic while also offering sail training and scientific missions. It's been a long voyage but we're delighted to have partnered with New Dawn Traders to bring this delicious coffee to our community. We only have a limited amount available so don't miss your chance to sample some great and sustainably shipped coffee. The firm said while sailboats might never replace cargo ships as the primary means of transporting coffee, forward-looking experiments like the one Glen Lyon Coffee and New Dawn Traders are embarking on aim to demonstrate potential options. Las Brisas means the breezes and points to the winds of the Rio Blanco River, produced by a cooperative of 15 farmers who are paid significantly above the market rate for the coffee, which is grown using methods that foster biodiversity and reduce the need for fertilisation. Cutting our carbon footprint is a big focus of the team here at Glen Lyon, 
from packaging to solar panels to our recent B Corp certification, Fiona Grant, founder of Glen Lion Coffee, said. We were thrilled to discover new Dawn traders and their sailboat ship Columbia Las Brisas, and we can't wait for our customers and community to try this exceptional and forward-looking coffee. This article is by Brian Donnelly. From the Herald, Wednesday the 3rd of August 2022, from the Voices section, Eden McWhorter, did anyone ever think Trust was going to listen to Sturgeon? By E. McWhorter, columnist. Tory party members haven't had a lot to cheer about during this leadership campaign. Except, that is, on Monday in Exeter, where they cheered to the rafters as Liz Truss described the First Minister of Scotland as an attention seeker and said, the best thing to do with Nicola Sturgeon is ignore her. This clearly hit their G-spot. Ms Sturgeon is the politician Tories love to hate. The Deputy First Minister, John Swinney, immediately donned his high horse and told BBC that people in Scotland, whatever their politics, will be absolutely horrified by the obnoxious remarks that Liz Truss has made. I have to say that signs of shock and horror were notably absent from the streets of Scotland yesterday, except on Twitter, which is in a permanent state of inarticulate outrage. I don't think people in Scotland are particularly surprised or horrified by a Tory minister saying she's going to ignore demand for a repeat referendum, which is what Ms Truss actually said when she was turning a, she was turning a deaf ear to. The Tory Prime Ministers have not been listening to that for the last eight years, and anyone who thinks that the next Tory PM, whoever wins, is going to relent, really hasn't been listening themselves. Presumably Mr Swinney thinks that Scots will take umbrage, not just at the rejection of NDRF2, but at the tone with, with in which Ms Truss dismissed the First Minister as an attention seeker. He suggested that in dismissing Nicola Sturgeon, Ms Truss was dismissing the Scottish people who elected her. But Ms Sturgeon is not Scotland, and I don't think there is much more umbrage Scottish voters can take after the Boris years. Mr Johnson couldn't open his mouth without offending everyone in hearing distance. Moreover, they've heard Ms Sturgeon hurling insults at the UK Prime Minister for the last four years. She called Boris Johnson a tinpot dictator and a racist. You can't get much more offensive than that without risking legal action. Was she accusing the voters of England of these traits? Of course not. Many nationalist politicians may privately think that English people are all racist, but but they don't say it out loud. Look, politicians say offensive things about each other. Get over it. Not listening hardly registers in the canon of political invective. What is perhaps more significant is the reaction of the Tory faithful who really don't like Ms Sturgeon. Hardly news, but it gives a hint of the kind of politics we can expect at the next general election. That election may be coming sooner than we think. There is much muttering in the Tory party right now about whether and when their next leader should go to the country. With fuel bills rising to staggering heights, inflation in double figures, interest rates rising and a possible recession on the horizon, it might make a lot of sense to go earlier rather than later. The next Tory leader can expect a honeymoon period as they begin afresh. Mr Johnson is history, 
and Sir Keir Starmer is not exactly setting the heather on fire. The Tories might be accused of cutting and running before the roof falls in on the economy, but Labour has been calling, not unreasonable, for an early election on the grounds that a PM elected by only 150,000 elderly Tory members lacks a democratic mandate. However, it may be able to Ms Truss who enters number 10 to clean the surface of wine stains left by the previous occupant. The latest opinion poll of Tory members in the Times suggests that the former Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, whom everyone had written off, is only five points behind Ms Trust. That lead may disappear altogether after the first significant unforced error of the campaign. Yesterday, Ms Trust unveiled a policy intended to save £8 billion by apparently lowering public sector pay outside London. She claims that the policy was misinterpreted, but just to be on the safe side, she cancelled it before the lunchtime news bulletins. The Tory mayor of Tees Valley, Ben Houchin, said he was actually speechless and said that Ms Truss has undone all the good work of levelling up by proposing to level down wages in neglected regions like his. Critics may say that levelling up was always more rhetoric than reality, but that is beside the point. This flakiness and lack of policy grasp is precisely what Ms Truss critics have been accusing her of since she became a candidate for leadership. Mr Johnson's former senior advisor, Dominic Cummings, famously described her as the human hand grenade who blew up every policy she had a hand in. As ballots go out to Tory members, this is about as bad as it could get for Team Truss. But we can be sure that, whenever the election comes, Ms Sturgeon's personality will figure prominently in it. Sir Keir insists till he is red in the face that he will not form any kind of electoral pact or alliance with Ms Sturgeon after the election, but no one believes him. The Scottish Labour Party promised not to form coalitions with any party after last year's Scottish Local Authority elections and now found itself in informal alliance in a number of Scottish Council chambers. There may well be no formal deal with the SNP and Sir Keiris is supposed to an early independence referendum as mistrust, but that doesn't mean cooperation won't happen. It stands to reason that the SNP will support Labour policy by policy on issues it supports such as self-ID for trans women, or seeking an accommodation with the EU single market to unblock the Northern Ireland Protocol. So I expect to see billboards across England depicting Sir Keir in Ms Sturgeon's breast pocket, as with Ed Miliband in 2015. However, there is one difference. The SNP, and now the Scottish Green Party, claim that the next general election will be a de facto referendum on independence. That is something that Ms Truss, if it's she who leads the next government, will be ignoring with all her might. And that was an opinion piece by Ian McWhorter. Our columns are a platform for writers to express their opinions. They do not necessarily represent the views of the Herald. Herald Scotland recorded on Wednesday 3rd of August 2022. Arts and Entertainments. Batgirls scrapped by Warner Brothers after poor test screenings. By Jodie Harrison, reporter. Warner Brothers has reportedly scrapped its upcoming Batgirl film following poor screen testing results. The DC film, which was set to feature Hollywood stars Michael Keaton, Brendan Fraser, J.K. Simmons and Leslie Grace, was being filmed entirely in Glasgow. Production reportedly cost an estimated $70 million, $57.6 million, and the film was scheduled for release in late 2022. 
But following test screenings, the studio decided to shelve the production completely, and it will no longer appear in theatres or on streaming service HBO Max, according to US publication The New York Post. It comes after several cast and crew members, including Grace and co-star Ethan Kai, as well as directors Adil El Arbi and Bilal Falal, were pictured filming in Scotland. In January, the Trongate area of Glasgow was transformed by set builders into the famous Gotham City, with alterations made to shop fronts and police cars. Batgirl was due to focus on Barbara Gordon, played by Grace, the daughter of Gotham Police Commissioner Jim Gordon. DC has been contacted for comment. By Jodie Harrison, Herald Scotland, recorded on Wednesday 3rd of August 2022. Arts and Entertainments. Paperback. Common Decency by Susanna Dickey by Alistair Mabbitt. Common Decency, Susanna Dickey, Double Day, £14.99. It must be stressful enough to carry on an affair with a married man, with all the uncertainty, anxiety and insecurity that it entails, but if at the same time you're unknowingly having your mind messed with by a downstairs neighbour who has a copy of your front door key, that's more than enough to push a person to the brink. To begin with, both of the central characters in Susanna Dickey's achingly poignant second novel seem to have a lot in common. Both live alone in the same Belfast apartment block and both are allowing attachments to unattainable people to drag them down. There's Siobhan, who is so completely invested in her affair with married father of one, Andrew, that daily life, including her job as a primary school teacher, is just something to be endured until their next hookup. There were danger signs from the start that she was getting too involved. She would pretend to have read the books he talked about and to get the references he made, becoming so fixated on being his ideal partner that she was losing her grip on any notions she had of her core personality. Over time, all the skulking around empty promises and the strain of sharing him with another woman have taken their toll on her health and her ability to manage her life. In the flat directly beneath Siobhan lives Lily, by nature a reclusive person, she has grown even more withdrawn since the death of her mother, a biology teacher with a sharp philosophical mind. In her head she relives over and over the last few months she spent with her dying mother, remembering the conversations they had and imagining new ones. Lily's fixation with Siobhan begins when she realises that their occasional brief meetings in the hall haven't registered at all, and that her neighbour is oblivious to Lily's very existence. Looking upstairs, she sees that Siobhan keeps a rack of shoes in the landing outside her front door and envies the blithe naivety required to abandon her shoes outside her home, potentially prey to the interference of others. The quiet assuredness of her own dominion over this space. Lily would like Siobhan to teach her how to live like that, to be a person who could restore her to what she was before. But she has a strange way of going about it, stealing Siobhan's spare key from a neighbour's kitchen drawer and sneaking into her flat when she's out, making subtle changes to it on each visit. Chapters from each of their perspectives run alternately, with occasional crossovers where we see the same incidents from different viewpoints, but although Lily and Siobhan never meet more than fleetingly, they have more in common than they know. Obsessing over people they can never reach has made them prisoners in their own lives, and brought them to the point where these two strangers have become sources of torment for each other, unable to lead fulfilling lives away from the objects of their affections. The stress has brought out the worst in both of them, but Dickie judges, correctly, that showing them in all their self-centred fallibility and pettiness will win over our compassion in the end, 
It's hard not to be struck, for instance, by the grieving Lily's yearnings for a humdrum life, as it leaves her with a greater capacity to keep vivid those moments that mattered. Throughout Dickie's prose thoroughly inhabits their stalled and stagnating urban existences, dark and sombre, but nevertheless pulsing with unexpected bursts of mischief and shot through with insight and empathy. By Alistair Mabbitt. From the Herald Scotland, Thursday the 4th of August 2022, from the news section, a Scottish Conservative Council convener steps down from role before bad behaviour, no confidence vote. Report by Martin Williams. A Scottish Conservative Council convener has stepped down from the role a week before he was due to face a no-confidence vote after alleged bad behaviour. Mark McCrae of Moray Council was set to face a vote of no-confidence at a meeting next week after allegations about his behaviour dating back to before he was appointed as convener in March. In June, councillors signed an open letter calling for the Fockabers and Glenbury councillor to refer himself to the Standards Commission or face a vote of no confidence. Former Conservative colleague Frank Brown said the councillor was not a fit and proper person to be the civic head of the council when he was voted into the position in May, following complaints about his behaviour. The Conservative councillor said he had contacted Police Scotland about his concerns. Stepping aside as convener will enable me to clear my name of unfounded allegations, he said. At the moment, these allegations are creating a distraction to the important work which I and my fellow councillors within the administration are trying to do. Therefore, after much reflection, I have decided that it is the best interest of the administration that I step aside from this very public role, as I do not wish my personal situation to mar the good work of the team or the council. He added, the council has to move forward. After the meeting next week, we need to focus on setting the budget for the next year and I don't want anything to take away from that. A statement announcing the resignation said, with a former councillor making continued allegations and sending these to a wider distribution list in an attempt to further discredit him, with the backing of the Moray Conservative Council Group, Councillor McCrae has sought input from Police Scotland. Mr McCrae became civic head of the council in May and is part of a minority Conservative administration. Ten councillors, eight SNP and two independents had put their names to a motion of no confidence in the convener. Kathleen Robertson, leader of the Conservative group, said Councillor McCree and I take all allegations against our members seriously and I fully support his desire to clear his name. I respect the way in which Councillor McCree has handled this situation and have been impressed with his selfless approach which led to his decision. There are 26 seats in Murray Council with the Conservatives following the largest group with 11 councillors. The SNP have eight elected members. There are three Labour, two Independents, one Green and one Liberal Democrat. The behaviour concerns dated back three years ago and are believed to relate to an alleged incident involving the nature of Mr McCree's complaint about a council employee to his line manager. In a statement released by the party in May, Mr McCree said, the incident referred to is not something I'm proud of, but I immediately apologise to the member of staff concerned for my behaviour. I've always been a hard-working councillor, something I believe is recognised by constituents and reflected in the vote I received at the recent council elections. Graham Ledbetter, the SNP group's co-leader, said Mr McCree had done the right thing by resigning, but he added, 
His claims that allegations against him are unfounded gives rise to more questions than answers. The past behaviour issues that led to the no-confidence motion are true and certainly not unfounded. If he wants to set the record straight, he should set out in detail the events he accepts did happen and the consequences of those events. He should also set out what he considers to be unfounded. The statement issued today by the Conservative deflects from the fundamental concern that Councillor McCree should never have been appointed to the position of convener. Mr McCree said in June that he had been in contact with the Commissioner for Ethical Standards and Public Life in Scotland and was told that the incident complained about was fully investigated and they had no interest in taking things further. It was dealt with internally in the Council and it's a matter that really should be put behind. It's a former colleague who's no longer an elected member who has a personal dislike for reasons that are known best to him. If I could just get on with the day job and bring all 25 other councillors with me, we have a very good chance to have a strong council for Moray. I'm very disappointed in some of the comments that have been made. These people are making the comments based on information that they don't know that they've had third party from a former colleague. As I say, if they were more informed, they may have been wiser not to make those comments. But it's fair to say that I've had no complaints from any senior officer or the corporate management team of Moray Council. There was never any suggestion that I was not a fit and proper person to assume the role. I think the people in the council know me. The reputational damage is something that does concern me greatly. I am not trying to damage Moray Council. Mr McCree will stay on as councillor for the Falkabers and Clan Bridey Ward and will also remain as chairman of the Economic Development and Infrastructure Services Committee. And that article was by Martin Williams. From the Herald Scotland, Thursday the 4th of August 2022, from the news section. All staff made redundant as popular Stirling wedding venue collapses. By Scott Wright, Deputy Business Editor. A popular wedding venue in Stirling has collapsed into liquidation after succumbing to the fallout from the coronavirus pandemic. Broomhall Castle, which can trace its history back to 1874 and was turned into a small hotel in 1985, offered function rooms, a restaurant and 17 ensuite bedrooms. But trading was badly affected by the impact of Covid lockdowns, with debts accrued making the business no longer viable. The business ceased trading following the appointment of administrators Ken Patullo and Kenny Craig of Babies on August 2nd, with all 12 staff being made redundant. Mr Patullo said, It is sad to see the demise of this popular hotel after almost 40 years in business. Unfortunately, the hospitality sector is one of the worst affected by the disruption of the pandemic, with the series of lockdowns over the last two years resulting in a significant loss of revenue. We are currently in the process of realising any assets we can provide the best turn for our creditors, as well as liaising with anyone who has bookings at the hotel to advise them of the situation so that they can make alternative arrangements for their weddings. There are currently 18 weddings booked, almost all of which have been secured via credit cards, so these companies should be able to get the deposits reimbursed by the credit card companies. And that article was by Scott Wright. From the Herald Scotland, Thursday the 4th of August 2022, from the politics section, Trust claims Scottish Government spending entire resources on independence by Kathleen Nutt. Liz Truss 
has claimed the Scottish Government are using their entire resources on the independence campaign. The Tory leadership frontrunner made the claim as she was asked at a party hosting in Cardiff on Wednesday if she would ignore the Welsh First Minister after she said she would do so to Nicola Sturgeon. During her speech in Cardiff, the Foreign Secretary had attacked Mr Drakeford as a low-energy version of Jeremy Corbyn and Sir Keir Stammer as a plastic patriot. But based on whether she would ignore Mark Drakeford, she told the audience that the situation in Scotland and Wales differed. What's happening in Scotland is the entire resources of the Scottish Government are being used to run essentially an independence campaign, and I think that is grossly irresponsible. The Scottish Government are not delivering for the people of Scotland. They are simply spending their time, and Nicola Sturgeon is spending her time, agitating for independence. She added, And the point I was making is the UK Government should be doing what we are doing, which is delivering for the people of Scotland, whether that's driving jobs and investments in Scotland, whether it's delivering a strong foreign policy and defence policy that protects the entire United Kingdom. In May, the Scottish Government revealed that it had allocated £20 million to holding an independent referendum next year. Ms Sturgeon later defended the sum, saying it represented a tiny fraction of the Scottish Government's budget after she came in for criticism over the spending. She said that the referendum will give the people of Scotland an opportunity to choose a better future at this particular moment in time. She added, UK government decisions have cut her budget this year by more than 5% in real terms. They will constrain growth in her budget over the next four years to 2%, while inflation is close to 10%. Inflation in the UK, of course, which thanks to the folly of Brexit, is the highest of any G7 country. Every year right now, the Scottish Government is having to invest more than £700 million mitigating the impacts of Westminster policies that Scotland did not vote for. I think that £20 million, 0.05%, one half of one tenth of one percent of the entire Scottish Government budget to give the people of this country the opportunity to choose a better future is and will be a really good investment. At the start of the hustings, former leader of the Tories, Lord Michael Howard, spoke about his reasons for endorsing Rishi Sunak for leader ahead of Mr Sunak's appearance on stage. Lord Howard compared Mr Sunak to former Tory Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. He told the crowd in Cardiff, I knew Margaret Thatcher. I had the privilege of serving in Margaret Thatcher's cabinet. I want to tell you one or two things this evening about Margaret Thatcher. She hated inflation. So does Rishi Sunak. She hated the thought of increased borrowing. So does Rishi Sunak. She would never have countenanced unfunded, irresponsible tax cuts. Nor will Rishi Sunak. Margaret Thatcher always told the truth. She didn't tell people what she thought they wanted to hear. She tells them the truth. And so does Rishi Sunak. He added, We have the opportunity of electing a Prime Minister who can provide the leadership we need not only in this country, but across the wider Western world. The people of Wales, especially Welsh Conservatives, are wise. We have good sense, we have good judgement, and this is why I am confident we will choose to lead, to lead us, to inspire us, to take us to a great and glorious future. Our next Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak. The SNP have been approached for comment, and that was an article by Kathleen Nutt. Herald Scotland recorded on Thursday 4th of August 2022, Arts and Entertainments. 
Ricky Ross shares his story with new book by Paul English. Here's a new chapter in the life of Ricky Ross that was written too late to be included in his memoir. It feels fantastic, says the Deacon Bloom frontman, days after becoming a grandfather for the first time. I texted Jim Kerr the other day to tell him and he said to me, this means you definitely have to carry on. My grandkids told me they tell people they're grand, brackets, Chrissy Hine, close brackets, and granddad are rock stars. Jim said that was the coolest thing, which I thought was really funny. At 64, the arrival of his daughter Caitlin's son into the world in California comes at a time when Ross shows no sign of doing anything other than carrying on. His band recently completed a UK tour of the album they brought out weeks before the beginning of the pandemic and will perform in the Netherlands and Belgium this month. But August 2022 will also mark the beginning of what he jokes feels like starting a new job. I'm enjoying the challenge, he says, reflecting on his first venture into memoir writing and the unfamiliar territory it will deliver him to. It's an unknown world to me, publishers, book launches, book festivals, but it's an interesting world. The memoir, Walking Back Home, Deacon Blue and Me, is accompanied by a new solo record, Short Stories Volume 2, which will take Ross back out on the road just weeks after Deacon Blue completed a tour originally scheduled two years ago, albeit this time in considerably more intimate venues than Hammersmith Apollo and Glasgow Hydro. Aside from the literary festival appearances that I write in Glasgow and Edinburgh's Book Festival, there will be a spoken word component to his solo tour, allowing Ross to share stories he started writing before he had any notion of publishing a memoir. It's a bit experimental and I'll have to judge it as I go along, he says. But that's my intention. I didn't intend to write a memoir. I wrote a song called On Love for our City of Love album, which vaguely mentioned my grandparents. It was a trigger for me. I wanted to write more about them, and then I started to think about other people I wanted to write about, so I did. For all Ross's credentials in the field, having sold albums by multiples of millions and rising to the top end of the international pop industry during the excess of the 1980s and 1990s, Walking Back Home is determinedly shy of showbiz spills. There's a brief mention of a party with Bruce Springsteen, a wink in the direction of a do with Bono in The Edge, a head tilt towards Rod Stewart and a cute anecdote about Billy Joel. The Rolling Stones and George Martin ghost through paragraphs and Mike Scott of the Waterboys, a pivotal figure in Ross's story, is both gently held to account and ultimately absolved. An anecdote about how Ross bought his kids a pony after a co-writing credit in James Blunt's song High from his mega-selling debut album is among the few divulgences of showbiz excess. A tale told more fondly than the one about the New York record execs and the offers of cocaine and prostitutes. It doesn't really matter if you're meeting the Pope or the Dalai Lama or the bloke three doors down, says Ross. What the reader really wants to know about you is you and your emotions. Yet anyone looking for the kiss-and-tell candour once pursued by the press after the singer married his Deacon Blue bandmate Lorraine McIntosh following the end of his first marriage won't find tittle-tattle here. I suspect some people might want to read salacious gossip and all the rest of it, so we should warn them now, says Ross, lightly acknowledging the parts he left out. I don't talk really much about Lorraine or my ex-wife, and I don't talk about my children. I love them all dearly, but I felt they weren't my stories to tell. Nor is it a blow-by-blow account of the success of the band he formed in Glasgow in 1986, or a making-of chronology of how songs like Dignity and Real Gone Kid drove them to the top of the charts and into pop history. Fans will have to look to elsewhere for that. Instead, the memoir's early richness is found in the detail Ross shares of his Dundee childhood, 
with warm stories of an exciting aunt whose record collection gave Ross and his sister childhood access to pop hooks via repeated listens to her copy of Patchouli Clark's Downtown. There are sepia-toned recollections of the roles his grandparents played in his young life and insights into the stifling nature of an upbringing in the Plymouth Brethren. Passages about the dawning realisation of his father's mental health struggles and much later well-intentioned events going wrong in the days preceding his mother's death in 2020 are especially moving. His recollections of his days as a youth worker in Dundee and as a young teacher in Glasgow suggest that had the nascent songwriting flame not taken hold, working with young people would have delivered their own harder-won joys. It's a constant search in the book, says Ross, when I suggest that the pursuit of joy is a recurring theme. Whether on stage in front of 250,000, headlining Glasgow's Big Day in 1990, or visiting slums in Brazil with Christian Aid. I think that's the search for most people, to realise when you're happy, to realise when life is good. I don't want to use the cliché of Calvinism, but there is a sense in which sometimes that can dominate our lives, that somehow you deny yourself. I think you have to allow yourself to celebrate these moments. I talk about a gig we played in Kilmarnock Prison, and the chaplain, Father Joe Boland, saying to me that where there's joy, there's God. And that was such a great thing. His Ayrshire Jailhouse Rock epiphany is one of several in the memoir which suggests that Ross didn't fully appreciate what he had until it had gone. His band split at the top of the UK album charts in 1994. Two years later, after a lukewarm response to his solo album, the songwriter was dropped by his record label. Even when Deacon Blue eventually reformed in 1999, Ross tells how the road back to fulfilment and joy was a long time coming. A turn at Glastonbury in 2011 gave him the confidence to consider the possibility of a Deacon Blue version too. They've released five well-received albums since, returning to venues the size of which they last played in their first heyday 30 years ago. The memoir's title fits. Its final chapter, though, is no conclusion. Ross says, I've often said people would be surprised by how easily I could give up playing live, but our last tour, which was so difficult with the restrictions because we had to cancel shows in Ireland and Scotland, there was actually something magical about it. I realised, this isn't something I'm ready to quit yet. Walking Back Home, Deacon Blue and Me by Ricky Ross is out in 4 August, published by Headline. Short Stories Volume 2 is released in 5 August on Cooking Vinyl. Ricky Ross will be in conversation with Nicola Meehan at Edinburgh's Book Festival on 18 August. RickyRoss.com by Paul English Herald Scotland recorded on Friday 5th of August 2022. Arts and Entertainments Herald Short Story Scottish Wintertime by Jacqueline Allingham by Herald Magazine Jacqueline Allingham of Straven was encouraged to enter the Herald Mighty Pens competition thanks to a friend. I was delighted to hear of being a winner and also very surprised. I'm a recently retired NHS speech and language therapist and I have always loved books. My friend Carolyn and I decided we would try writing short pieces for each other during lockdown when we took turns to choose a topic and we would each write a story or poem and post them to each other. I discovered I really enjoyed writing and also was excited to read what my friend had written. This inspired me to find the confidence to write a story for the Herald competition. Scottish Winter Time December 1968 It was the year the government decided not to move the clocks back for the winter. It was the month I moved with my family from suburban Surrey to a rural town in deepest Lanarkshire. 
My dad said that this change from Greenwich Mean Time to British Standard Time was an experiment to see if fewer children would get run over on the way to school before daybreak than they would going home in the dark. School children were all given fluorescent yellow sashes and armbands to wear in the pre-dawn obscurity. I don't know the results of the experiment, but they went back to changing the clocks after a year or two. We'd moved from the supermarket bright suburbs, where I could walk to school in the daylight with my friend, and I now found myself in a couthy market town, where I had to make my way with my brother in a pitchy darkness to morning school. To cope with this cultural shift, I tried to focus on the benefits. My girl guide Let's Diary from 1968 indicates two lists as follows. Good things, bad things. Near to Gran, I am new girl. More countryside, darker and colder. Saw fox, no friends. I can see a donkey in the way to school, left best friend behind. My mum always got up early and lit the coal fire. She would then put her underwear in the fire guard to warm up and we would shiver as we rushed to dress in the freezing living room. Frosty icy patterns decorated the inside of the windows. Bowl of porridge with a sprinkle of brown sugar in the creamy top of the milk and a cup of tea the colour of an autumn beech leaf and then a spoonful of slippery cod liver oil before being cast out to the dim morning sporting her sashes and armbands. It wasn't long before my brother met some other boys his age and scampered off ahead. He was six and it seemed easy for him to make friends. The boys of that age seemed to bond with each other through physical means rather than verbal and they ran together bumping collaboratively against each other like a litter of puppies. Aged ten and a half I felt I needed to use language to make new friends and the trouble was that I became overcome with anxiety about how my accent sounded as I feared being teased for being English. I was walking down the big hill clad in a home-knitted balaclava and mittens and my rather rigid duffel coat. My new satchel was slung from my shoulder in a manner I hoped looked nonchalant. I hadn't needed a satchel in Surrey as you didn't get homework till high school there, but Mum had bought this one which now contained my jotter stroke exercise book, gutties stroke plinsoles, and a chocolate digestive wrapped in foil for my playpiece stroke snack. There she is, the new lassie. I turned to see three girls and a boy who I recognised from my class. They were walking behind me. For a moment I hoped they were going to be friendly and walk with me to school, so I smiled. Let's see if she will talk. What you got in the bag? I said the word in my head first to see if it could come out without sounding too English. Stuff. Do you know you're a Sassanach? I did know, because my dad used to tease us and say we were Sassanach children, but when the boy said it, it sounded like an insult. I felt my face redden and it became hot under the prickly balaclava. Then the boy said, I think we should look to see what she keeps in that bag. He snatched it from my shoulder, he opened it and they all gazed inside in the gloom, as if they might see a wonderful surprise. The contents were a disappointment and the boy gave me a look as if to offer it back to me. I stretched my hand out and he pulled the bag away and the four of them ran off schoolwards, fluorescent bands dancing in the darkness like malevolent fireflies. For a moment I imagined being like my brother and running with them laughing and bumping and joining in, but my courage failed and I followed them at my usual trudging pace. The nice lollipop man gave me a grin as he helped me safely across the road. At school, no sign of the satchel, and I had to pretend to the teacher I had forgotten my homework, as instinct warned me that to tell the truth would be unwise. By morning playtime, the sun had risen and it was brighter but still freezing cold. I stood alone and without my biscuit to occupy me, it seemed like an eternity till we were back in class. The homework journey was brighter and less spooky, and now I could see more clearly where I was going and where I had been.
I was rehearsing what to say to mum as I didn't want more trouble over the satchel, but when I arrived home she greeted me with a triumphant look what the postman brought with the Christmas cards as she held up a slightly squashed satchel. He said that someone had somehow squeezed it into the post box and it had your name and address inside so he delivered it. The next morning I arrived at school with my satchel and the boy looked surprised and then he laughed. You got it back? Want to play peevers with us? You can have some of mine. I noticed the dawn was starting to break through and I could see the welcome in their faces now. What made this a winner? Bernard Bale. It is a very human story that just about all of us can relate to if we have ever gone to school. That fear of knowing nobody. Fear of not matching up in the eyes of both teachers and fellow pupils can be a terrifying experience that for some has left scars for life. The relief of being accepted is clear and the reader is relieved along with it. Going to a new school is close to joining a new family and emotionally very stressful. Words are not just about reading, they're about feeling and Scottish wintertime achieves this. Congratulations. Who are Mighty Pens? Mighty Pens was formed by a team of experienced writers, editors and publishers to help others achieve their dreams and to help veteran family members record their lives for future generations. Mighty Pens produces books in many different ways from basic publishing for family and fun to commercial publishing including marketing, publicity and distribution. The books can be hardback, paperback, ebooks, and audiobooks. The audiobooks can even be read by a chosen celebrity. Mighty Pens also is a coaching facility for both hobbyists and career seekers. The team of editors and writers are all seasoned professionals and are available for one-on-one -on -one courses or group coaching. The possibilities are enormous since Mighty Pens can help you with novels, short stories, full-scale non-fiction books and articles, script writing, songwriting, press and marketing work, website copy, poetry and just about anything else that requires writing. Browse mightypens.co.uk and info at mightypens.co.uk for advice. Mention HMPP in your message for priority information. By Herald Magazine. Herald Scotland, recorded on Friday 5th of August 2022. Arts and Entertainments. Keith Bruce, Feast or Flop, There Are Worrying Signs of Slow Ticket Sales at the Fringe. By Keith Bruce. As he first faced the challenges of the pandemic over two years ago, Edinburgh International Festival director Fergus Linehan speculated that it would not be until 2022, the 75th year of the event and his own final programme, that things would be back to normal. That assessment has proved optimistic. Covid is still with us, even if its worst effects have been mitigated by the mass vaccination programme. It remains a factor in problematic travel arrangements in trains, planes and ferries, as well as in all other workplaces, and in the arts it has led to an unprecedented call on the services of understudies, covers and depths for performances to go ahead. And although preventative measures against the disease are now voluntary and largely ignored, many people point to audiences big and small as demonstrably super-spreader events. As is now being recognised, the UK's furlough scheme and other efforts to compensate for the measures taken against the disease were not as world-beating as claimed. And for workers in the culture sector, especially those employed on a freelance basis, there was often little or nothing at all. Despite all the hardship, creativity thrives and a packed summer of events is underway. That significant anniversary of both EIF and its robustious fringe being marked with full programmes opening later this week. The only question, and it is a crucial one, is whether the audience is also in the starting blocks. There are some worrying signs. Fringe ticket sales are reportedly well down in previous years and a similar dip has been reported at the BBC proms in London. 
Alongside the outdoor popular music festival successes we've seen in television must be considered the last minute cancellation of other such events. Promoters have had to be brave in the face of slow advance sales with evidence of last minute walk up ticket buyers making the difference between profit and loss. Scotland's small scale chamber music festivals, a success story of the new millennium, rely less in box office than patronage which is a model of arts funding found in the USA that has obvious implications for access to culture and the whole shape of society, as Britain was remade after the Second World War. Like education in the NHS, culture is becoming a political football, despite the fact that there is little evidence of any public appetite for change. The public appetite, however, is also a problem. Audience sizes are varying hugely for no apparent reason, on his recent summer tour of Scotland's smaller towns and cities, the Scottish Chamber Orchestra could be playing to a capacity house one night and a very sparse crowd the next. Touring theatre productions have reported similar unpredictability, with some curtailing their schedules. And while other music fans are prepared to shell out huge sums to watch heritage acts as the industry terms them, innovative and new music plays to small audiences for scant reward. It's surely odd that top prices are paid to hear musicians whom even their fans would admit are a half a century past the peak of their powers. Map that against the change in classical orchestra and chamber music over any 50 years in history, and it is rock and roll that looks concerningly conservative. Linehan has blurred the distinction between festival and fringe, brackets high and low arts as some would still see it, close brackets, in important ways. From the start of his tenure, his programmes have included small-scale theatre alongside spectacular events and a strand of contemporary music alongside the festival's bedrock, orchestral, opera and chamber music programme. Importantly, that difficult-to-label contemporary strand has specialised in more experimental and boundary-pushing artists, of the kind that are not usually showcased in an international arts festival that also includes opera and orchestras. That endorsement is exactly what is needed to counteract creeping box office conservatism. Although she herself makes a living in the classical world, it seems likely that his much younger successor Nicola Benedetti will want to continue that work. At the fringe with its come all ye ethos of making it possible for anyone to present their work in Edinburgh in August in a facilitating rather than curatorial remit, you would hope that the fresh and new would also have pride of place but there is a long history of theatre makers, although the largest contingent of the programme, shouting to make themselves heard over the comedians. Of course, there is plenty of room for both, brackets, even if a room to rest their heads at the end of the night may now be shockingly overpriced, close brackets, but the recent row about the non-appearance of the Fringe app this year should be seen in that context. Technology can be as dangerous as it is beneficial, and the convenience of being able to buy tickets easily in a mobile phone has to be measured against the effect that ease has on ticket buying decision making. Back up to well over 3,000 shows, there is a wealth of work and offer at the fringe, but on the app it is the familiar names in the most famous multi-space venues that will catch the eye first. It's the lazy way of buying tickets. Fringe boss Shona McCarthy has not quite said that as much, but a robust attitude in the face of an open letter critical of her administration suggests that she sees that as part of the access equation she has pledged to address. Leafing through the fringe brochure, or reading a leaflet thrust into your hand in the Royal Mile by a performer committed enough to do their own publicity when they are not actually on stage, is much more in the spirit of Edinburgh's summer feast of culture than scrolling through availability in a phone. A little more work as an audience member can reap undreamed of rewards, or at the very least an excellent story to tell about your visit to the capital often for a great deal less expense. 
Whether you choose festival or fringe, a back-to-normal audience would be the best present for Scotland's globally famed cultural bonanza on its 75th birthday, and a good night out is always the best tonic for whatever ails you. By Keith Bruce. The Herald, Friday the 5th of August, 2022. News. James Black. No need to panic just yet, but worrying signs are looming large for business. This article is by James Black. This year has not seen the return to normality that many businesses hoped for. Supply chain disruption, rising prices, hiring difficulties, interest rate rises and lack of confidence are taking their toll. Many economic organisations are now forecasting potential slowdowns in the UK and globally, but significant uncertainty remains around forecast business conditions. One of the challenges in predicting slowdowns is the timing. Robust data often takes months to collect, so we often do not know if the economy has started slowing until months after it begins. It's helpful to step back and look at the significant economic drivers in times of such uncertainty. Survey snapshots, such as our recently published Scottish Business Monitor, sponsored by Adelshaw Goddard, can provide some hints. So what are businesses saying about their current performance and expectations for the coming year? Starting with the positives, more businesses reported an increase in sales volume in the year's second quarter than a fall, resulting in a net balance of plus 15%. This net figure is reasonably high, and this level hasn't been seen in our survey since 2014. Employment, new business and capital investment indicators also remained positive for the second quarter. On the face of it, businesses have been remarkably resilient. Few people predicted emerging from one of the greatest human health crises in over a century with unemployment rates near record lows. Scottish onshore GDP grew by 0.6% in May, now 1.1% above February 2020 levels of output. But concerns are now starting to emerge in the data. The net balance of the sales volume is still positive, but has weakened since the start of the year. Looking ahead to expectations over the next six months, the positive but weakening findings is consistent across many indicators, such as business volume, new business and employment. This weakening is mirrored across several other surveys. The June RBS Purchasing Managers Index showed the weakest expansion in Scotland's business activity since January. Only 13% of UK businesses in the ONS's Business Insights and Conditions Survey reported an increase in turnover in June, compared to 24% reporting a decrease and expectations for August are negative. The most commonly reported challenge impacting these turnover figures is the cost of materials. Our survey has been asking Scottish businesses to report on their business costs since 1998 and provides a useful reference for the scale of this challenge. 
The past four quarters have shown cost increases across the board. Costs for energy, employees, inputs, imported goods and services, distribution and credit are all increasing or already very high compared to the 23 years of surveyed total business costs between 1998 and 2020, each of the past four quarters is a record-breaker. The knock-on impact of these price rises continues to filter through the economy. An ONS survey states that 44% of UK firms have reported absorbing costs, while 26% passed on price increases to consumers. Two in five Scottish firms we surveyed said they expect to reduce their operations due to energy prices. Concerns exist around how these supply-side issues could lead to significant demand-side impacts and contribute to a slowdown. So what does the evidence show on how the major drivers of demand Consumer spending, export demand, government spending and investment have been affected. Household spending accounts for almost two-thirds of Scotland's GDP, but many people have seen their costs increase while their wages have failed to keep up. The likely impact is people dipping into savings, borrowing, buying fewer goods and services, or substituting for cheaper goods and services. On savings, aggregate data up to May on net household deposits to UK banks has so far remained relatively stable over the year. If consumers, as an aggregate, start dipping into savings, this would be worrying not just for living standards, but also for a potential reckoning down the road as these savings eventually run out. Credit card borrowing does appear to have increased, but total borrowing is still moderate compared to the past decade. However, UK retail sales data up to June shows rising sales values and falling sales volumes. Inflation has driven what is now a significant wedge between these trends. Sales volumes have fallen close to levels seen in June 2019 perhaps not yet concerningly low, but the trend is worrying both in terms of living standards and the consequential impact on businesses and their supply chains. For now, the data primarily points to reductions in delayable purchases such as furniture. Mostly anecdotal evidence suggests that consumers are opting for cheaper options in supermarkets and switching to budget retailers. If domestic demand appears to be showing initial signs of slowing, will exporting come to the rescue? Most Scottish businesses in our survey say no. Pessimism exists about export performance over the next six months and a global slowdown in 2023 appears increasingly likely. Government spending in Scotland was projected to barely increase in real terms between 2022-23 and 2025-26 and inflation expectations have since worsened. The cost of living payment and £400 energy rebate will likely partially offset but not reverse expected negative consumer trends. However, it remains to be seen how UK policy may change 
under new leadership. According to the Bank of England, investment intentions are still positive and firms are increasingly looking towards energy-saving investments. But some firms are reassessing investment plans as the economic outlook worsens. The challenges this year result from a perfect storm of supply chain issues. This included several surprises on the downside. An optimist may hope for surprises on the upside too. Any signs of improved energy supply and production levels in China deserve attention over the coming months. For now, the message for businesses is don't panic, but do worry. But for many people, there is increasing evidence that we are leaving a health crisis only to enter a crisis of living standards. This article is by James Black, who is a Knowledge Exchange Associate at the University of Strathclyde's Fraser of Allender Institute. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 8th of August 2022, from the Opinion section, Doug Marr, there's nothing super about supermarket shopping. Somewhere in our subconscious lurks the primal fear of not having enough to eat. It's probably a throwback to our hunter-gatherer ancestors. For them, failure to waylay an unsuspecting hairy mammoth could have dire consequences for the entire tribe. Feeding the Paleolithic family was a matter of personal responsibility. Otherwise, they would starve. Tory leadership candidates would surely applaud that early manifestation of true conservative values. Back then, stocking the larder was highly aggressive, ruthless and competitive. In fact, a bit like present-day supermarket shopping. We can understand our ancestors' anxiety. They lived at a time of constant scarcity. We don't have that excuse. Something like Covid or the whiff of a lorry driver strike stirs our primal fear of starvation. What other explanation can there be for the mass clearance of supermarket shelves at the first hint of anything out of the ordinary? It's not just food. Seemingly same people will go off their trolleys stockpiling enough toilet rolls to deal with an outbreak of dysentery in a medium-sized town. During the pandemic, our local Tesco introduced rationing to ensure supplies of loo paper weren't... If you forgive the expression, wiped out. Pasta supplies were ravaged, but still the penny didn't drop. Psychologists have long studied what it is about supermarket shopping that brings out the worst in us. TV ads full of smiling, singing and even dancing punters are far from accurate. Studies suggest most of us take no pleasure from the road to the aisles. Arriving in an apprehensive state, the short view is already lit. Irrational anger builds in the car park before we enter the store. Even in an empty car park, someone will park close enough to bash your car door when they open theirs. The culprit's usual reaction is to ignore what happened or mumble, sorry mate, but you're not parked in the middle of your space. A relative demanded and received £100 from a careless door opener. Most of us would have scowled and said nothing. Even if there are hundreds of vacant spaces, the thoughtless will park within six inches of your boot, making it impossible to stow away your shopping without moving the car. I'm as bad as anyone. Occasionally, if I feel I've had to park in a different postcode, I needlessly fret about someone parking in the drop-off area or why that able-looking bloke is in a space for the disabled. Our local supermarket is near a secondary school. Truants and excluded 
used to wear away the hours between 9 and 4 by holding trolley demolition derbies in the car park. The store tried to put a spoke in their wheels by chaining the trolleys together, requiring a pound coin for release. A less tolerant society would have claimed to chain the miscreants together. In the increasingly cashless age, many shoppers must experience the frustration of reaching the trolley park, only to discover the absence of a pound coin. It's surprising, however, how many careful Aberdonians don't reclaim their pounds, abandoning their trolleys that then run off, halted only by an encounter with someone else's car. Having navigated the frustrations of the car and trolley parks, we are now fired up for the shop. Once inside, there is no shortage of further frustrations. The eco-friendly bags, for example, cunningly designed to self-destruct the moment you add more than a couple of bananas. Early day shoppers must feign interest in the household products aisle while waiting for the drinks area to open at 10am. In a highly competitive field, this must be the Scottish Government's most pointless piece of legislation. Then there is aisle range when trolleys are weaponised to bulldoze anyone who stops suddenly to examine a product. The elderly and firm are incentivised to move a little faster when impatient shoppers repeatedly nudge trolleys into the backs of their legs. This is most evident at the checkout where the elderly wait until all their shopping is in the trolley before conducting a full body search for their credit card and discount vouchers. As an encore, they fascinate the checkout operator with descriptions of their current ailments. Worryingly, rapidly rising prices can only add to the stress of supermarket shopping. It's time for management to actively encourage shoppers to be more considerate of one another, even in small ways. After all, every little helps. And that was an opinion piece by Doug Marr. Our columns are a platform for writers to express their opinions. They do not necessarily represent the views of the Herald. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 8th of August 2022, from the opinion section, Mark Smith, a William Wallace pilgrimage and what I learned from it. You're having a laugh, aren't you? I put the William Wallace Memorial in London into Google's Maps on my phone and I'm listening to the voice instructions as I walk along the road. We're nearly there. Turn right into Little Britain, it says. Really? Could it be mocking me, I wonder? But right enough, there it is at the end of a street that really is called Little Britain, beside the back doors in St Bart's Hospital. Above the doorway, atop some pillars, there's a massive stone slab commemorating Henry VIII that's about ten times the size of the Wallace Tribute. Aye, that's typical, some might say. I take it all in for a few minutes. Part of me wishes I was a psychogeographer, one of those people who said they can wander around a city like London and sense the atmosphere, remnants of history that are beneath, and behind, and between. I can't pretend to feel any of it personally, but I'm here. I also know, because I've read the historical accounts, what this place would have been like when William Wallace was dragged here. Smithfield was a huge open space. It was where people came to joust and fight, eat, drink, wrestle, play football, and find a prostitute of whatever kind they needed. But above all, it's where you came to watch people being killed and torn to pieces. The meat market was nearby, so human guts mingled with animal and it was all swept into the river fleet. I take a look at the words in the memorial. Sir William Wallace, it tells me, 
fought dauntlessly in defence of his country's liberty and independence before being betrayed and put to death on 23rd of August 1305. It also says his memory remains for all time a source of pride, honour and inspiration to his countrymen. And this, the Bartus Optima Rerum, freedom is the best thing. There's another plaque underneath it as well. The memorial was placed here, it says, by Scots and friends at home and abroad, and was unveiled on the 8th of April 1956. There's a railing at the front to which people have attached plastic flowers and ribbons. One of the ribbons is from Ronnie Cowan, the MP for Inverclyde. Mr Cowan is a member of the Scottish National Party. But that date is interesting, isn't it? 1956. Why then? The 50s was hardly one of the high points of Scottish nationalism. In fact, you might even call the 50s and 60s an idea where most of the Scottish electorate weren't interested. Perhaps that's the reason Scots and Friends chose to then to erect a memorial. Perhaps they thought it would get things started. But if they did think that, it didn't work. Instead, it wasn't until the 1970s that the SNP reached one of its peaks and Wallace had very little to do with it. So what was it? The feeding of the post-war consensus? The shrinking of the empire? The fall in the Tory vote breaking up in the Union's majority? The decline in the Church of Scotland and Protestantism? The economic troubles of the early 1970s? Take your pick. But it meant that the SNP got 11 seats in the 74 election, some 20 years after Wallace, the Wallace song was erected by a street called Little Britain. I watched the people going by. No one stops. Occasionally, someone glances sideways at the guy staring at the plaque on the wall. Me. But otherwise, the memorial attracts no attention. We know from the flowers, though, and the ribbons, that people come here. Perhaps are kind of pulled to the spot. Perhaps they connected in some way to the story of Wallace when they were young and have felt it ever since and end up here in Little Britain. Let me tell you something. It includes me. Like a lot of Scottish kids, one of my earliest impressions of history was the story of Wallace. I remember my teacher telling me about his execution, the horror of it, the guts. I also remember the nasty feeling I got about his betrayal and condemnation. I suppose, really, that Edward I, although most sheer can, was one of the first baddies of my childhood. But then you grow up, don't you? And you see grey as well as black and white, and you learn a lot of the myth was created centuries later by Blind Harry. You, hopefully, become more realistic and put it all in its proper historical context. Not entirely, though. We've got to talk about Braveheart, haven't we? I remember seeing it for the first time at the Odeon on Renfield Street and coming out, feeling a bit weird and saying to my friends, If there was a referendum tomorrow, I would vote for Scottish independence. I may even have said, Freedom! My friends looked at me funny and quite right too. It proves no one is immune to the cheapest of patriotic tricks. But it doesn't last, and for good reason. Braveheart isn't real. Looking at the Wallace Memorial now, I think you can detect something similar, something Bravehearty in the words. They are true for many, that his memory remains for all time a source of pride, honour and inspiration. But, like anything made from granite, memorials lack context or any sense of how things change. It's why people call for contextualising notices and statues and memorials, and I guess this one to Wallace should be no different. So I'm thinking about the phrase at the memorial, for all time, and how actually the SNP's peak of 1974 
led to the disastrous trough of 1979. It also makes me think that what sometimes feels like a, cur- a current never-end do- dominance of the Nationalists could, should, will come to an end as well, before possibly rising again in years to come. Because that's how history works. Memorials are made of stones, political movements not so much. I'm wondering as well about the feelings behind the words in the memorial, and specifically, what I'm feeling today. If I'm honest, I'm not entirely sure why I've come here, but something made me. I also realise that I can still, without trying very hard, connect with the childhood me who was horrified and hated the hammer of the Scots, and the young man who said, Freedom! outside the Odeon in Renfield Street in 1995. But I do not feel what this place used to be. I cannot see the big open space, or the faces of the people who come to watch the killings, or the guts, human and animal, swept into the river fleet. I can't even imagine it, to be honest. What I can hear is an ambulance. I see nurses walking past. And it isn't 1303, or 1956, or even 74 or 79. The Australian writer Robert Hughes said small nations should neither strut nor cringe, but maybe... With respect to Hughes, I can add something else. Small nations should never strut or cringe or get bitter. I came here and I am glad, and now the visit's over. And that was a comment piece by Mark Smith. Our columns are a platform for writers to express their opinions. They do not necessarily represent the views of the Herald. The Herald's Monday the 8th of August 2022 News. Government drift means it will be too late to help poor with energy bills, warns Gordon Brown. This article is by Tom Gordon. Gordon Brown has warned a vacuum at the top of the government means it will soon be too late to help the poorest with their energy bills when they rise in October. The former Labour Prime Minister said an emergency budget was needed before Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak replaced Boris Johnson in September to address the cost of living crisis. It's not just that they're asleep at the wheel. There's nobody at the wheel, he said. The man who gave the Bank of England independence when he became Chancellor in 1997 also criticised the institution for being too slow to get a grip of inflation, which is forecast to hit 13.3%, the target is 2%. You have to bear down on inflation and of course the Bank of England probably should have acted a lot more quickly than they did, Mr Brown said this morning. He also said the various tax cuts being proposed by the Tory leadership candidates would help the better off, not those facing unprecedented hardship through the winter. Speaking on Good Morning Britain, he said many people faced unpayable bills in October when the energy price cap is due to rise from a £2,000 average in April to £3,350 a year. Mr Brown said if you don't act now, you cannot get the benefits to people by October 1st. If you wait until after the new Prime Minister is selected... That will be too late to get benefits to people by October the 1st. It's too late because people will be experiencing great hardship and unbearable burden of unpayable bills in October. So that's why I want Liz Truss, 
Rishi Sunak, Boris Johnson, they may disagree on things, but they should get together, agree that they are in charge of delivering an emergency budget. Parliament should be recalled if necessary. We cannot let this crisis develop so that we have an emergency we cannot deal with properly in October. He said a vacuum was stopping the government tackling the cost of living crisis. There's got to be someone in charge, and it's not just that they're asleep at the wheel. There's nobody at the wheel at the moment. You've got Boris and his Chancellor who have been on holiday, and then you've got the two leadership candidates on the campaign trail. What's happening at the centre of government is there is a vacuum, and it's got to be filled immediately if we're going to protect people by October. I know from my own experience you've got to act quickly to deal with the benefits and tax issues if you're going to get the changes in by the time you want them to be in. The former Fife MP also questioned the pledges being made in the Tory leadership race. He said the tax cuts that Liz Truss is proposing don't really help the people who need the help most. They give most to people who are richer. Rishi Sunak's now come out with a tax cut, cutting VAT off energy bills that he himself said would disproportionately help the rich a few months ago. It's not tax cuts that are going to solve the problem that we've got in the winter months. You have to bear down on inflation and of course the Bank of England probably should have acted a lot more quickly than they did. But the key thing at the moment is dealing with the cost of living crisis and helping people through the winter months. Calling for a meeting of the government's COBRA emergency unit, he later told Sky News, we've only seven weeks to go before October the 1st. You've got to change the universal credit computer to enable it to make payments to people, and there's no doubt that people are going to go without food, and they're going to go hungry and cold in October if we don't take action now. So this is the time to take action. And that's why I'm saying that government ministers should be meeting with the two leadership candidates so that they can agree a package that could be implemented immediately. If not, Parliament should be recalled to look at what is a national emergency. And at the same time, of course, the special committee should be meeting to look at all these plans. You could be looking at a cap on energy prices you could be doing what Norway does and say we'll pay 80% of the increasing bills or you could have better social security support. All these things are not really being discussed by government ministers at the moment, not even the leadership candidates who are obsessed about tax cuts. SNP Westminster leader Ian Blackford said Mr Johnson was missing in action. He said he must come out of hiding and recall Parliament immediately so MPs can get around the table to figure out how best to support people through this cost of living crisis. People cannot wait another several weeks for the next Prime Minister to be installed for financial support, as the completely out-of-touch UK Business Secretary suggests. People need help now. This article is by Tom Gordon. From the Herald... Tuesday the 9th of August 2022, from the Opinion section. The Frightening Creep of Tory Net Zero Scepticism by Vicky Allen 
It's almost as if there is an omerta among parts of the UK Conservative Party, including leadership hopefuls Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak, on the use of the term net zero. The colour green has mostly been washed out from the leadership debate, perhaps unsurprising given in a YouGov poll of Tory party members last month, net zero came bottom of a list of 10 policy areas behind cutting personal taxes, increasing defence spending and strengthening Britain's global standing. This silence represents a sign that in the UK an anti-net zero sentiment is gaining traction. Worse still, six out of ten people who voted Tory in the 2019 election, according to a recent YouGov survey, would like to see net zero frozen. It's a figure that suggests that Nigel Farage-style climate policy dismissive politics is not going away, and that the cost of living crisis and rising fuel poverty is only likely to be further falsely weaponised as an argument against any net zero plan. In Truss, worryingly, we have a likely UK leader, 26 points ahead in a recent poll, who relies on the backing of net zero sceptics like Steve Baker, founder of the Net Zero Scrutiny Group. She may talk about having been a teenage eco-warrior before it was fashionable, but that reeks of greenwash given she finds her support in friends like Baker and has frequently voted against measures to fight climate change. She is advocating fracking and scrapping green levies, likes to hop around the country in a helicopter and seems keen to clamp down on climate protesters, none of which are good signs. Though she may have signed a pledge to deliver net zero by 2050, she has also said she would review how it's delivered, reworking it so that it, quotes, doesn't harm people and businesses, close quotes. While to the independence movement, Liz Trust may look like a gift with her attention-seeking statements about Nicola Sturgeon, she is hardly something to laugh about. We should all be worrying not just about so-called trussonomics, but also about a potential UK that loosens its grip on net zero, especially given that already most net zero plans, including the strategies of the Scottish and UK governments, are riddled with holes. In a landmark ruling last month, the High Court ordered that the UK government's net zero strategy was unlawful and ordered that policymakers flesh out the strategy with details. It seems likely that the Scottish plan, were it to be examined in this way, would also be found unlawful. Meanwhile, net zero scepticism is to be guarded against. It's where climate denialism, or at least the forces and spirit of it, has set up its new camp. In this territory, we have Nigel Farage, voice for a referendum on net zero, whose Vote Power, Not Poverty campaign was co-founded by Richard Tice, the multimillionaire leader of Reform UK, who also happened to speak at an event organised by CAR26, a climate science sceptic group that first floated the idea of a net zero referendum in a poll last autumn. Then there's the Net Zero Scrutiny Group in the Tory party, a faction with roots in the libertarian network behind the push for a hard Brexit, which has links to climate science denial. Thankfully, in Scotland, anti-net zero sentiment appears to be less vocalised, but it is not absent. 
A survey into attitudes among Scots to Scotland and the UK's existing targets published last month found that a third of people, especially the over 65s, said that the current targets were too ambitious. Still, Truss and Sunak might want to be wary about taking too much of a hands-off approach to climate or playing down the need for net zero. The latest polling from the think tank Onward found that 51% of committed Conservative voters wish to keep the net zero target against 35.4% who did not. The next Conservative leader, it noted, will struggle to rebuild an election-winning voter coalition without strong leadership on net zero. Both current Conservative voters and possible defectors to the party remain strongly in favour of the target of reaching net zero by 2050. Evidence that this contest has been too light on climate is also there in the setting up this week of a new pro-climate policy party by Tory MP Ed Gemmell. The Climate Party, Gemmell said, would ensure British climate leadership while upholding true conservative values and supporting businesses. Could climate, the omerta topic, prove to be the issue that tears the party apart? If scepticism is allowed to take root, it ought to. Net zero is the best and only global plan we have. Deserting it will be like giving up on a future, which will very soon be our present. This article was by Vicky Allen. And that was this week's The Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.